I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna Summers here, again, as a great but non-British and not particularly sunny person. What do you make of the Great British Summer? How dare you, sir? I think it's accurate. I mean, first of all, I'm going to say, I moved here from Spain. I am not a summer person. (laughs) I moved here for the rain and the fog and the, like, constant autumn... I'm not into this heat. Until climate change happened, you would have loved a British summer. Anyway, I asked because this episode we're going to be talking about bait, in which the residents of a fishing village try to hold back the tide of city types swamping their home over the summer. But before we get onto that, what have you been watching, Anna? Well, I completely binge-watched Euphoria, which is an American show based on an Israeli TV show of the same name, directed, creatively directed by Sam Levinson, mm-hmm. who's the son of Barry, who most notably did a feature film that was released last year called Assassination Nation, which we covered on this podcast as well. We did. Essentially, it follows a group of 17-year-olds. The Israeli show was actually based in the 90s, so it was very much focused on Gen X teenagers. This is very much an extremely contemporary. This is 2019 teenagers. I'm envious of your generation. You guys don't care as much about the rules. The cast is mainly unknowns, really talented young actors, and the led by Zendaya. Hey, I'm Ru. I'm an addict. Who, don't at me, I think is becoming her generation's Meryl Streep. She is extraordinary. Look, it's been a really, really fucked up day, okay? So I need you to open the door for me, okay? Can you open the door, please? I'm not going to help you kill yourself, Rue. So every episode of the show, which is very graphic and kind of got a lot of coverage for its uh, full frontal male nudity in particular, and kind of raised a lot of questions about the portrayal of sex, drugs, eating disorders, mental health portrayals, everything is in the show. It's very raw, it's raunchy, but it's also very kind of intimate. At some point, you make a choice about who you are and what you want. Everything's centered around the interior and not just the exterior life of this teenager. So every episode is usually narrated by Zendaya's character, who's a recovering drug addict who's just come out of rehab. It really centers on every kind of main character in each episode. So they all get fleshed out so much more beyond the stereotypes of like the pretty popular girl or the jock or the nerd or the outcast. Because all of this shit, it's connected, Fez. 
and it is way bigger than any of us can even fucking see. Especially interestingly, I found was the relationship with the the persona that they create for themselves on social media and how that impacts their social lives and potentially their futures or gets them into quite sticky, messy situations. Let me say, after watching the show, I'm very glad I'm not a teenager in 2019. <laughs> I would not be able to deal with the stuff that they're dealing with right now. The point is, that's me right now. That is fucking me. I can see everything so fucking clearly. I know what happened, I know why it happened, and I know what the fuck I'm gonna do about it. Word. Word. Yeah, but it's also seriously got one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard in any TV show or movie. Been listening to it constantly. Highly recommend seeking out the music and the series as well. Speaking of soundtracks, I warn you, my segue game is not on point today, but I'm gonna do my best. Speaking of soundtracks, I've been listening to a podcast called Ear Hustle. Ear Hustle. From PRX's Radiotopia. Now, this has been out a while. It started in June 2017, but Series 4 of it started just now. Um, and that is a podcast made by the prisoners at San Quentin uh, by a prisoner called Erlon Woods. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison in California. And a producer called, let me find her name, Nigel Poor. I'm Nigel Poor, a visual artist who volunteers at San Quentin. Who goes into the prison as a volunteer and, and comes out making this podcast with the inmates. And together... We're going to take you inside. Part of that is recording some live track recordings of them playing music, hence the soundtrack segue. But the rest of it is the story of the prisoners' lives in prison. And it's just, it sounds incredibly trite and cliched and sanitized. But actually what it is, is a kind of really raw, open, honest portrayal of what it's like to serve that much time in a high security prison. In prison, there's a lot of rules. And I mean... A lot of rules. Um, San Quentin is a maximum security, so they have access to, for example, podcast recording facilities mm -hmm. and arts programs and all that kind of stuff. But it's still a lifestyle that is very, very restricted for these guys. Yeah, we only got two flushes within a five-minute period, so you have to, I mean, have to time it out. Yeah, let's not go too deep into that one. And the way that they get the prisoners to open up about their experience is just extraordinary. There's an incredible episode about race, which is called Unspoken, and it's about how racial segregation in the prison is enforced by each prison group, by each ethnic group, for their own safety, mm -hmm. which doesn't seem to make any sense to an outsider. But as Erlon says, that's exactly how it is in the real world, really, if we're being truly honest, that racial groups don't tend to disseminate between each other that much. I mean, some guys take it a lot farther than I ever would. I'll do the jokes and stuff like that but i won't do no grabbing or it's out of pocket in the shower yeah, slapping asses yeah like, <laughs> you have it's, it's crazy it's just an extraordinary piece of radio and i just felt um it's a real antidote to a lot of true crime podcasting out there and i say that very cautiously because i'm looking at pete dead man talking still available on itunes it's <laughs> a brilliant series too but good plug what you normally hear from podcasts about crime is you hear about the mystery of the crime or about how terrifying and violent crime could be and it can but what you're hearing now are people who were seen as terrifying and violent mm -hmm. in another life talking about what it's actually like to go through that process come out the other side and try to build a life for yourself after you've been involved in that kind of situation does it focus on them inside the prison or once they've left they're all inside the prison 
they're guys that committed crimes when they're 18 or 21. You know, they've done a lot of growing, as the prison speak is, and they've managed to come out the other side as 40-plus-year-olds now talking about their lives and their crimes, and also about the minutiae of prison life itself. Mm -hmm. So, like, how you eat, how you go to the shower. The minutiae that you talk about is kind of endlessly fascinating. It really is. I mean, look at Oz, which was the the first kind of HBO prestige TV show in the late 90s, early 2000s, even before The Sopranos, or even the continued success of Orange is the New Black. Um, The minutiae of how you exist or live in this really confined space is constantly fiction fodder. This podcast sounds amazing, and I'm going to check it out. Evening, Mrs. Peters. Evening, Martin. Lovely day. Okay, time for some real talk. Bait is a new British film, BFI back no less, by Cornish director Mark Jenkins. It tells the story of Martin, a fisherman still struggling to make a living out of the sea, even though the local economy is now hooked on seasonal tourism. Meanwhile, the DFLers are snapping up property left, right and centre, including Martin's childhood home. Bath. How many you got? Four. Could do one more. All I got. How much? Thirty quid. Cheers. Got yourself a helper then? Crew. You haven't got a boat, Martin. We'll have soon. Yeah, your prices. See you directly, Liz. So, bait is so many things. We can talk about the way it's made which is interesting and artisanal and kind of handmade. We can talk about the landscape and how it uses that, about kind of gentrification, about people, men set in their ways. What do you think this is actually about? What's the main thing that resonated from Bait with you? I think Bait's about gentrification and it feels like a very British subject matter, particularly in this film, but it's kind of about Brexit as well in the... You're right. It's about a guy who's set in his ways, who's part of an industry fishing that is crumbling in the particular place that he lives. And he also lives in an incredibly poor part of Britain. And Cornwall, people often say, has two Mm -hmm. sides to it, right? It has the kind of the beauty and the tourism and the sense that it's now a second home to a lot of wealthy people from cities. I've never been to Cornwall. Gorgeous. You should go. It's absolutely lovely. But on the other side of that, there are areas that are Mm -hmm. very, very poor and have to rely on a lot of EU funding, for example. Like I read a chart the other day that said that Cornwall is the second poorest region of Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. You know, so in that environment, there are always going to be stories like this that pop up that reflect that. And Mark Jenkins' film before this, Broncos House, did Mm -hmm. the same thing about housing. And it was talking about how communities like this tend to get lost. We're not leaving the village. Stay as long as you need. Thank you. You can't raise a family in your sister's box room, Bronco. What about squatting a second home? It can't just be a free-for-all. Open your eyes, man. It is a free-for-all. But this film is both about that, but also about one guy struggling to come to terms with the fact that the world is changing around him, which I think is something on a grand scale that as a country we're all trying to deal with as well. One of the things that a lot of the reviews and the critics after its festival run stuck to, the fact that it's really visually stunning, it's unusual. It's unusual in the way it sounds, in the way it looks. It just instantly grabs your attention because 
it seems very otherworldly, but also it looks like a home movie that was dug out from under the sand on a Cornwall beach somewhere and sort of discovered as this artifact or this creation of, you know, Martin the fisherman, basically, as if he's not really a character, but a real human being. But for me, it didn't, you know, aside from the filmmaking itself, didn't strike me as particularly beautiful spot. And I don't know if that was part of his design as well. I love the idea of digging this film out of the beach. That's a really nice idea that it's a kind of artifact that we find. And I think Mark Jenkins was kind of going for that mm. because we'll talk about the process of making it in a bit, but very briefly, it's kind of a rough and ready lo-fi version of filmmaking that he's developed himself. I think you're right that it's not beautiful, but it's not supposed to be because we're seeing mm. the world through Martin's eyes, right? Like, And that's the whole point. Like, The people coming down from London have come here and bought up property because they think this place is beautiful. But if you're born there, you grew up there and you worked in an mm. industry that is very much digging into that beauty to try and pull out anything you can make money out of, i.e. fish. Martin doesn't see the place as beautiful because it's home. It's it's like growing up anywhere. You don't you see it you see the beauty for the memories it gives you and the, for people there, not for the landscape really that's around you. You've been clamped. I think so. Yeah. Who done that? Who do you think? Pricks. You own the bloody street. You can't just park there all day. It's fine you picking stuff up and dropping stuff off. I work off. in the arbor. I'm a bloody fisherman. Are you? Where's your boat? Why do you think he tries to hang on to it so fiercely, though? Because we all try and hang on to what we know, right? Like that's, It's terrifying. Change is always terrifying, mm. in, particularly when it's your livelihood. And in Martin's case, the story is about him struggling to deal with the fact that people have moved down from London and literally bought his childhood home, the place where his mum died. Mm. And they've reinvented it in this kind of facsimile of what the fishing industry is. So they have this kind of cutesy cosmetic porthole and they've saved some of his floats that he used for fishing and put them up around the house. Worst thing of all is they've turned the fishing net loft that he had into an Airbnb. And so I almost said it's a satire. It is a mm. satire in a sense, but it's also kind of a tragedy in that it, it really shows how richer people coming down from areas that don't know anything about the place they're coming mm -hmm. to, they aren't just being brutal about it, they're just aware. And it, there's a kind of evil in that unawareness. Losing your temper isn't going to help. I haven't lost my temper yet. Your old man wouldn't have shut the pub in the winter. Get out! Talking about fishing, no fucking hospitality. Just trying to earn a living, you know. So are we. We didn't have to sell us this house, didn't we? I mean, the only thing that sort of dates it in many ways is the fact that they use the term Airbnb. Yeah. Otherwise, like, it almost seems technology-free, essentially. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the really scary bit about it as well, is that, I mean, the whole film, you can you can argue that it's kind of from Martin's perspective, and it's sort of twisted and blackened and misshapen because of that in many ways. But at the same time, that kind of twisted approach to appropriating something that they have no understanding of and commodifying it for Airbnb or Instagram purposes kind of is so, I don't know if it's satirical. It's really vilified. Like they are presented as out and out, very basic, evil, 
capitalist villains that try to defend their position as kind of growing and investing. And they use this term as well, investing in the local industry and the local community, whether it's, you know, and there's this great confrontation in the film between Martin and kind of the one of the wealthy Londoners where they argue and he sort of laughs in his face. It's like, what industry, what community? You're making money for yourself, not for us, Uh, which is kind of this aggressive confrontation that is essentially the, the message of the film. But it's also a lot about a sort of arrested development of Martin's character in many ways. He aggressively refuses to embrace any sort of change, positive or negative. I can I can almost imagine the life that he could have led or the relationships that he could have developed if he just embraced the change or even been better off. Yeah if he embraced some of the changes that were happening, but by aggressively shutting down and vilifying any sort of change, I almost feel like the people that are presented as villains, it's almost presented as characters. So he's not really seeing any other side or angle to anything. Everything is an assault on a way of life, but I don't really see him even loving that way of life particularly. But you're right, but that's one way to respond to it, right? And then the blueprint for change and another way of looking at it is his brother's character who has adapted by converting his fishing boat into a touring boat for, among other things, a stag do with a guy dressed as a giant cock, which is a way to make a living too, (laughs) right? (laughs) So That that was a particularly bleak moment. It was quite bleak, but also I think Mark Jenkins is saying, Mm -hmm. you know, these communities existed and they should be celebrated and they should be supported to a point. But I think he also agrees with you that change has to happen and that that change always comes from outside in that situation. He was so posh, I honestly thought he was speaking German. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Also, I'd roll back a little bit on saying that the, the London characters are purely evil. I think, I think they're just unaware or they're mm. just, they make so many assumptions about wealth and about what, what power their wealth has, which has come from growing up wealthy. And I watched this film with a tiny 
bit, well, actually fair whack of guilt myself because I'm someone who loves to go down to the coast and hire an Airbnb. Or you know, when I was a teenager, there was a kind of ritual of when we finished our exams going down to Newquay and going, going out drinking there. We were just invading that space, basically. And it was a ritualized invasion of those people's places. And that is tourism, but it's also something more insidious once you come, when class and wealth comes into it. And we're not often asked to think about that too carefully. Hmm. And this film and other films like it definitely ask you to think about it. I mean, that's one thing I want to pick apart that bit in a second. But that's the thing that stuck out for me as a non-British person without having those Mm -hmm. traditions and that relationship to the coast in my background as well. The thing that really stuck out for me is the class war, essentially, and how it's presented very much from Martin's point of view. But what I wanted to pick apart a little bit is kind of what is that ritualized relationship with the seaside? There are two kind of versions, maybe three in this film, but it seems to be a big part of British culture, especially British summertime culture in the same way as, say, music festivals are. Yeah. I mean, we're an island country, right? So the opportunity to go to an alien environment that is beautiful and offers fun if you live in a city is always kind of, you know, Are you saying that beauty and fun are alien? In London sometimes, depending <laughs> on where you live, <laughs> depending on your outlook. Um, no, but I, I think there is something exotic about the seaside for people who grow up in the countryside or grow up in cities, right? Like you get, you suddenly turn the corner and you've got this amazing expanse of sea there. And I imagine that countries that have mm. massive coastal lines, like, I don't know, if you live in California, your life is much more regulated by how it feels to be by the sea more mm-hmm. obviously. Whereas in London, you could pretend that the sea isn't a couple of hours train drive away. And it really is. And it's there. And there's a huge history. And it's been really well documented in film of working class people, particularly mm-hmm. going down from London on pleasure trains to places like Bournemouth to go and have a fun time in the sun and then come back for the day. And the seaside is a day trip. So it's also that sense of escapism. And it's a luxury. Yeah, and it? it's a luxury, yeah. but it's also a kind of you can afford to go and do that for the day, mm-hmm. particularly historically. What's changed now is that it's not so much working class families that are going down for the day, although that still happens. It's middle class, upper middle class families who are going for a season and can afford to buy a second home there. Mm -hmm. And again, this film shows that really well, that they are, they have become local, but they haven't become local in the sense that they are building or looking to build a community that includes everybody there because Mm -hmm. they simply haven't thought about it too hard. I'd argue that in some places in real life that is happening as well. So there's been a lot of debate about places like Margate or Whitstable, for example. Like, are they actually melded communities that are welcoming new people that bring money into the area as well as the people that have lived there for decades? Or are they a two-tier society that serve one population with nice artisanal coffee shops and bakeries that are quite expensive and serve the rest of the population by gradually eroding what that culture was? I don't think that's a purely negative thing, but I think it's complicated and it's really difficult, as with any immigration, to bring that together and to create a melting pot of society in that way. So this film, again, just shows that really beautifully, that I don't think either side is particularly evil or wrong. Mm. They're both just who they are, and that makes it difficult for them to get along. You've mentioned that you feel like this is a breakfast film. Yeah. Elaborate more on that. I'm going to be careful. (laughs) (laughs) We're in a cultural crisis, right? <laughs> like we are. Like our country yeah. is going through a period of mm. complete uncertainty uh, and opposition. I think it's easy to say that this film is a Brexit film, but this film does, in black and white terms, no pun literally. intended, literally, <laughs> offer the two sides that you could look at from mm-hmm. Brexit. Cornwall was overwhelmingly, I believe, voted for Leave, mm. ironically, given that they got given a lot of EU funding. And I'd argue that you could see Martin's character as the kind of prototype Lee voter because he's very much about the old Britain, right? The the Britain that was built on these industries that have 
decades and decades, if not hundreds of years of established history in the country. And he sees the world as it was, and he wants it to stay like that. Whereas the Londoners coming in who are much wealthier and have a lot more space to think more creatively about what they do with their lives. They're like, oh, well, you know, we want to be progressive and we want Europe to be part of this this place and we can help this place by bringing in our money. Both views are correct, I think, but both views can't live side by side. And that, mm-hmm. if, if anything, is how Britain is at the moment and will be for a while, right? Are any other films that come to mind that you think are kind of tapping into that cultural crisis that we're going through right now? Arcadia, which the BFI oh, author, yes. author made, was a really, like, I would, it's not quite a Brexit film, but it's a British film mm. for modern Britain. For a thousand years, these valleys have had a secret which no one else has shared. Arcadia is very folky in the same way as in a couple of the articles that I read about bait, they also mentioned kind of tinges of folklore yeah. in this film, which I found very interesting because that seems to be an innately British blend of tradition and horror cinema. A horror that doesn't feel like horror. Arcadia does really show rural Britain and I'm, I, I kind of I would hesitate to say it's kind of gothic Britain because I just think or folklore Britain it mm. is but it's also just showing so many different aspects of Britain that you can't mm-hmm. really label it as one thing but it does show Britain progressing through the decades mm-hmm. so that includes minor strikes that includes pagan ritual includes tradition the seaside all of those things and all those things go together to build a britain another thing that i was thinking about and it's not a film but is the recent series by russell t davis years and years which looks to the future of what britain will look like post presumably post brexit um talking about immigration and talking about how each individual will react to that look at the state we are in god knows we need to shake things up So I propose that in order to vote, every British citizen must take an IQ test. What did she just say? Are you saying that some people are too stupid to vote? I've got you listening now, haven't I? Things were okay a few years ago. Surprise! Now, I don't know what to worry about first. I'm only just beginning. What's it gonna be like for you? We used to think the news was boring. <laughs> it turns out we were born in a pause. I love it. The whole system's in pieces. And that was, I would argue, a very much a kind of Remainer's view of what mm. the world is going to look like, a slightly dystopian feel to it, or very dystopian feel to it. But again, that's building on the culture that we're living in right now. And I think probably telly is slightly more equipped to deal with that a bit more mm-hmm. because of the production schedules and all that stuff. Can you think of any films in general that are talking about gentrification and appropriation? The one that I think I spoke in this podcast before about it around the time that it was coming out in cinemas was Blind Spotting, which is actually yes. an American film. You know, you don't have to act ghetto to hang out here. Can you hear me now? You need to get rid of Miles. Miles, this is my best friend. He's going to put you back in jail or he's going to get you killed. Don't make me write you up for your last week. The judge will extend your time here a year. That is the life we live in, and if it's since the beginning, and you know we stuck in that soil, loyal, don't be who you is. And it very much deals with Oakland and California and kind of the hipster invasion and the vegan invasion and also the expectation and the clash of cultures. Every time you come around, you monsters got me feeling like a monster in my own town. Between the people who have always lived there, who've grown up there, who uh, believe in kind of not 
own but belong to the neighborhood sort of being ousted or judged or commodified by the people who come in and just completely invaded even architecturally you know they build houses that look nothing like the neighborhood totally but it's so completely the opposite because it's vibrant and lively and uh, colorful and dynamic whether it's bait is this artisanal almost handmade <laughs> small but really dense film yeah and to say small not as a derogatory thing but rather that it feels so contained and so specific in every choice because yeah. this is very much like the director did almost everything himself. And a lot has been written and said about his process of making the film. And it very much feels like a process-centered feature. Like I mentioned before, kind of getting the feeling that it was something dug out as a forgotten treasure on the beaches of Cornwall, something like that. I almost feel even watching it that, and I knew this was part of the sound design, but almost as if it was being projected in kind of in my house by someone with a projector and the audio was unsynced so they had to hold up the recorder with the music and it was always sort of off balance mm -hmm. and off kilter which made it so much more special it made you lean into the film a bit more because you're always trying to make sense of what's designed and what you think might be a mistake and that makes you makes for very active viewing as well because you're always trying to see the little nods and tricks that the director has created and it sort of creates this ethereal otherworldly portrait of very homey and um, kind of simple things mm -hmm. so even just him going out fishing or him going to the pub becomes almost like a, a Buñuel sci-fi film yeah. In many ways, there's a great scene of an argument going on in a pub that just felt like a spaghetti Western. <laughs> totally. It was it was yeah. like a standoff between all these locals. So kind of the craftsmanship that goes into the one into the filmmaking. So it was filmed on vintage stock of 60 millimeter filmmaking and was completely developed and processed by hand by the filmmaker. And then I think sort of went through several processes as well to make it look sort of more rugged or yeah. more aged. And everything was dubbed over the film as well, which is why the sound design seems so alien. And it works so beautifully. It's so curious. And it doesn't at any point, at least for me, feel like a gimmick. Yeah, I, I think the way this film is made is captivating. Like he used a clockwork camera, apparently, and that and it was so noisy. That's why he had to record. No, he didn't record any sound. And then he kind of overdubbed mm. everything on top of that. The actor's voices. That's why things are slightly out of sync. And you're totally right. That gives it a weird kind of ghostly ephemeral feel to it and you're quite unsure about where the film's going to land next because of that but I, I don't know quite where I landed it but there is something quite odd about a film that's about gentrification that uses this very rarefied filmmaking process right because if you think about the democratization of filmmaking it's all about digital technology making it easier and cheaper for people who don't have a lot of money mm -hmm. to make feature films and to get it out there on the internet as well right this is almost the polar opposite. And I'm sure Mark Jenkins will jump on me here and be like, well, I haven't got a lot of money and I spent years, decades, in fact, making this film. And he's completely right. Mm. But I think the reaction to it is sometimes films like this get gobbled up by the cineast audience mm -hmm. who are very much on that kind of losing end of the gentrification wave of the film industry. Oh, don't say that too loudly, Henry. I'm going to say that slightly quieter. They're very much on the losing end. Of, no, because 
it's something precious to go to the cinema and watch a film shot on film or something even more precious to go to the cinema and watch a film like this that is a curatorial or an auteurist piece that people mm-hmm. can love for that reason as well as it being a good story. Also, that's an increasingly rarefied experience, right? Mm. The people who'd go and see this film are, ironically enough, probably the down from Londoners in the film, right, for the most part. Whereas Martin... I don't think he would go and see this film. And that gives it a weird twist. I don't want that to be the case, but mm-hmm. I just feel like in reality that this the audience that appreciates this film are the audience that are portrayed in the film. And that's probably why there's a kind of a twinge and a bite to it as well. Like I mentioned before, it's the process that matters with something like bait. And I think that the process that matters um, and that is kind of disregarded by the wealthy Londoners in the film, Martin is all about the process. Even if he doesn't enjoy it, he does it, you know, the his fishing routine, you know, the getting up really early, doing all the stuff that I don't know the name for. Um, you know, that's his life, that's his process, that's what he knows, that's what's comforting, even though it's hard. Mm. And the same with this film. It's hard work and really expensive to make a film. But Jenkin kind of chose this particular path and he stuck to it and he kind of pushed it to the limit and it doesn't feel, um, I'd actually disagree that this would be probably more appreciated by the cineast crowd. I absolutely think it will be um, because there's so many deeper points, but also the process of making it is very fascinating for the people who are intrigued by filmmaking on film, Mm. if that makes sense. But actually it's, a lot more interesting for people who have a connection with what's portrayed in it. So even the reason that this struck uh, a more emotional chord with you and with Pete is because you have that connection to the landscape, to these types of characters, to these locations, to the nature of the conversation that it's um, raising about class in Britain, about gentrification, about Brexit, about the notion kind of about these landscapes and what they mean culturally and emotionally for British people, about kind of summertime and forgotten or um, declared industries, all of these things, the way that I'm going to see it is completely different because I don't have that emotional connection with those spaces and those places. So I actually think that this will resonate very differently with those two different audiences. That's it for this episode. We've a train to catch down to this delightful little village that does these absolutely darling seafood platters. We wouldn't want to miss it. Bait, BFI-backed and brilliant to boot is on release across the UK now. Our show, The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the BFI, is hosted by me, Henry, and Dice's Anna Bogutskaya. Anything you want to plug, Anna? There is a really intriguing-looking immersive screening of Ghost World going on the Detroxy at the end of September. Ooh, nice. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna. I'm on Anna B. Demented. Nothing fishy about our producer. He's Peter Sale. That's S-A-L-E. And you can hear more of his work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, your last line this week comes from a band beloved by angry middle-class dads who love a seaside Airbnb, i.e. me. Talking about process and dismissal, forced removal of the people on the corner, shelter and location, everybody wants somewhere. There's nothing like reading out song lyrics to someone who looks completely bemused. I mean, (laughs) in my mind, I was just thinking, why are you not singing? (laughs) I had to put a lid on it. (laughs) 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.